And as much as, as much as my friend from Knoxville who visited this week would protest this sentiment, it feels as if we've actually turned the corner on winter. <laughs> the morning after the storm, as it were. Daffodils and tulips, which just a week ago were mere sprigs thrusting up through the freshly falling snow, are now in full bloom. The lawn on the south side of my house here in Kenosha has seemed to turn bright green overnight in contrast to the north side's speckled taupe, which is immediately noticeable. Yes, it does feel like we are just starting, just starting to emerge from this last season, noticing the increasingly azure color of the lake mirroring cleaner, brighter skies. But we, contemporary Americans, seem to try to avoid the seasons as much as possible. What with our centralized heat, electric lighting, and solid walls and roofs, perhaps spurned by generations of our ancestors, suffering through brutal winters with only rough animal hides to protect them from the cold, only what little firewood and supplies they could gather and save to keep them alive until the growing times began yet again. Western religion has also traditionally been particularly suspect of nature and the natural elements. Nature was something to be avoided and shunned in pursuit of a holier, more pure existence, attempting and failing I might add, to separate humankind from the rest of the world. The natural impulse to eat was labeled gluttony. The natural impulse to procreate labeled lust and regulated to the extreme. Our connection to and dependence on the beauty of nature labeled witchcraft and so on. But even for all our trying and all our compensating, it is hard not to appreciate the visceral change in the season such as we are experiencing right now. And unlike most of Western spiritual history, we present-day Unitarian Universalists are perhaps more spiritually moved by the cycle of nature, or at least we're much more vocal about it than some. In fact, a large number of folks here, myself included, would probably identify themselves somewhere on the spiritual naturalist spectrum. That is, finding inspiration and spirituality and even faith from connecting with nature. A little, little poll by a show of hands. Who would say here that the label spiritual naturalist fits at least in part in what you believe. That's the vast majority of us. But as recently as a couple hundred years ago, European Christians, which all Unitarians and Universalists were at the time, by the way, this understanding of spirituality coming from nature would have been a blasphemous sentiment and so foreign to the cultural norm that it really wouldn't have even been understood but thankfully for us, 
there were a select few of our own direct spiritual ancestors whose minds were open more than most and took it upon themselves to explore the implications of nature not only as evidence of a benevolent creator, but part of that divine mechanism as well. We're probably familiar with the work of the man we heard earlier this morning, the great poet, philosopher, and educator, Henry David Thoreau. And yes, Patty got it right. It's Thoreau, like doing a thorough job on something. Thoreau, who famously retreated to the high banks of Walden Pond to live within and commune with nature. His watershed memoir of the time, entitled simply Walden, would influence each coming generation and make his name synonymous with the term transcendentalism. We might call it spiritual naturalism. Now, Walden remains to this day the seminal work in naturalism in which Thoreau laments what encroaching civilization is doing to the natural landscape. Thoreau's naturalist experiment on the banks of Walden Pond, a mere, mere two miles from downtown Concord, would become the basis for his work and illustrate for America a new way of looking at the natural world. For example, upon encountering an as-yet-unknown species of trout living in Walden Pond, he refused to catch, kill, or even attempt to eat the fish. He simply watched it through Walden's crystal-clear waters and described its markings and behavior in beautiful, unadorned prose. But our good friend Henry David was neither the first nor the most famous of the Transcendentalists in his time, and was himself heavily influenced by the great Unitarian pastor turned philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. His friends called him Waldo, so that's how I'm going to refer to him. Known as much for his poetry and prose as he is for his sermons, dear Waldo is considered the father of the Transcendentalist movement the philosophical, spiritual school of thought that claims God's evidence in nature, the use of reason in determining truth, and the interconnectedness of all things. I'm going to say that again. Transcendentalism claims God's evidence in nature, the use of reason in determining truth, and the interconnectedness of all things. Now, Emerson wrote about the harmony of nature and the individual responsibility to experience things for oneself, rejecting the infallibility of all ideas until tested by reason and experience. Now, Emerson, of course, would influence Thoreau, but would also act as editor and promoter for people like Walt Whitman, publish the Peabody Sisters, help bankroll utopian experiments such as George Ripley's Brook Farm and walk with Muir in the California wilderness. But our Unitarian movement in and dedication to the natural world neither began nor ended with Ralph Waldo Emerson. In fact, there is one person whose influence may overshadow all others in this movement, and unfortunately, for contemporary Americans, we have all 
but forgotten about her. Perhaps the number one influence, not perhaps, certainly the number one influence on the good Reverend Dr. Ralph Waldo Emerson and the true founder of the Transcendentalist movement was his aunt, Mary Moody Emerson. Now she was a great woman in both intellect and presence. Mary Moody Emerson would be her nephew Waldo's first and greatest teacher. She would assemble the best private library in post-colonial America, which included the first English translations and the first copies on these shores of Immanuel Kant, the Bhagavad Gita, the Kama Sutra, and the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Mary Moody Emerson was born in Concord a year before the fighting broke out there that would mark the true beginning of the American Revolution. And as a result, she lost her military chaplain father at a young age when he died of one of the numerous diseases that ran rampant through the Continental Army. She and her four siblings were, were split up and shipped out to different distant relatives. And Mary was forced to live in pretty abject poverty until such time as she could educate herself and begin making her own life. When she was a very young woman, she eventually inherited a, a small sum from the childless aunt and uncle who raised her. She pur purchased property, became a landlord, and began to correspond with the intellectual elite of New England, and Europe, in fact. She turned down at least one marriage proposal that we know of, and in fact never married, but she did seem to spend time with a few other outspoken women for her entire life. Her main sanctuary, which she purchased later in life, dubbed Elmvale, became the naturalist paradise where young Waldo would learn to love nature. And her sitting room in Concord in that library would become the site of the first meetings of the Transcendentalist Club attended, of course, by her nephew, but also by the likes of Thoreau, Longfellow, Channing. Waldo would rely on his aunt's correspondence in forming his own spiritual landscape, and the two would exchange hundreds, if not thousands, of letters throughout their long lives. They both lived well into their age. Essayists <coughs> Baker and Patrolonis researching in the Harvard archives recently, which housed Mary Emerson's extensive collection of journals and almanacs, had this to say about the two Emerson's communications. Quote, as he matriculated at Harvard and then as he began his ministry, Ralph Waldo Emerson's close relationship with his aunt is a prime example of the mentoring and repartee for which Mary Emerson was celebrated. During the 1820s especially, their back-and-forth correspondence often spilled onto almanac pages. These were her handmade journals that she would uh, produce in her own home. Would spill onto the almanac pages as the two took up all manner of inquiries. Their discussions ranged widely across subjects and figures from natural religion, Russian poetry, Indian mysticism, Northern Euro European mythology, and even to Shakespeare, Plato, Kant, Byron, Cicero, among a host of others." End quote. 
It was directly from Aunt Mary's mentorship of Waldo, which included her insistence and repeated demonstrations that women were the intellectual, moral, and spiritual equals of men, as well as moral outrage over slavery that Waldo included women and folks from marginalized communities in his further work. In setting up the dial, the dial, which is the publication that would be the vehicle through which transcendentalism was circulated throughout New England and eventually the world, uh, and is still considered one of the most important periodicals in the New Enlightenment period, Waldo would rely heavily upon a young an as yet unknown young female writer named Margaret Fuller, whom he hired as editor. Now, Fuller would, of course, become a household name uh, before her untimely death because of her own writings on the subject, but indeed, she never would have had the opportunity to publish if it hadn't been for the leadership of the dial recognizing her talent and skill. And this came directly from Mary Emerson's influence on Waldo. Likewise, Aunt Mary's mentorship of young Waldo would also affect his own support of the younger generations, helping support the younger Thoreau by, among other things, hiring him as a private tutor for promising Concord students, the most famous of which was Louisa May. Alcott, one of the earliest and by far the most successful female writer in the 19th century. Can you imagine having Henry David Thoreau as your English teacher in middle school? <laughs> be pretty cool. Though I bet you he was pretty hard. Yeah. <clears throat> and what is so special about this piece of our history is that it foreshadows virtually all of the developments in Unitarian Universalism for the next 150 years and counting. From conservation and preservation turned to environmental justice. From the rejection of slavery to abolitionism to ultimately civil rights. From the equality of the genders to the suffragist movement and the still unrealized struggle for ERA to a return to nature, if not in the way demonstrated by uh, dear Thoreau, at least as a legitimate and necessary source of spiritual inspiration. These are all the direct results of Mary Moody Emerson's influence on and contribution to not only our way of thinking as Unitarian Universalists, but the way our society has begun to see the world itself. So as we take pause this week to enjoy the sunshine, without the gray, sloppy expanse of melting snow. I have it on good authority, it will be 70 degrees on Tuesday. Rain, rain the rest of the week, but 70 on Tuesday. As we sit and marvel at the return of the flowers and songbirds and gentle breezes so long absent from our land, might we draw both artistic and spiritual inspiration from our experiences. And as we do emerge from winter's cold and stressful pressures, from grief and loss to a place of healing and hopefully new hope, let us also take a moment to rest in gratitude for those in our past who would affirm 
the spiritual significance of nature, the interconnectedness of all things, and, like they did, strive to inspire and support the generations yet to come. In this, we will be truly living into the naturalism so dear to the Emersons, and also carrying out their legacy to us all and to all people who would come after them. So I say thank you, Mary, thank you, Waldo, and thank you to all who might be inspired by the divinity of that natural world. May it be so. Blessed be, and amen. <clears throat>